Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Matthew 19, starting with verse 1. The Word of God says this, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Father, we call on you as a gracious God who has revealed yourself to us in the created order and on the pages of Scripture. And we pray for the presence of your Spirit to move among us, to give us understanding as we look to your Word for clarity so that we may understand your will for us and for your world. So guide us now, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds to behold the wonderful truths in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, a week ago, Friday, the Supreme Court of the United States of America defied the words that I just read to you from Matthew chapter 19, 1 through 6. The court redefined the word marriage in what is unmistakably a monumental decision that has now ushered us into a new era in the life of our country and in the life of the church in this country. The court has disregarded centuries of wisdom about what should be one of the basic foundational building blocks of human civilization so that now the question which used to be how is it that a person should support same-sex marriage is entirely different and now the question is how do you live in this country if you're going to oppose same-sex marriage now we all knew this was coming I think Uh, we've seen these developments unfolding over the last several decades Uh, and so for some of us we might be tempted to think well we knew it was going to happen what's the big deal but the fact that it now has happened doesn't make it any less significant it's kind of like when you know somebody a loved one who's terminally ill and you know they're going to pass away and you know it's coming and then when they finally pass away it's no less significant is it it's no less difficult to deal with, and it feels a little bit like something's died in our nation. Now, there might be a number of different responses to this here in this congregation. There might be some here today who are celebrating the decision of the court on June 26th. Uh, I know there are many who are appalled at what has happened, and there might be some of you who don't really care. 
I think probably all of you know that it's happened. I hope. There might be some that don't even know what I'm talking about. I hope that's not the case. Uh, but in any case, a guy named Russell Moore, he's a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, he said that there are two kinds of churches who are not going to help at all in this situation as we move forward. The one church is the kind that has given up on the authority of Scripture and is not submissive to its teaching. And the other kind of church is the one that is screaming with outrage. Russell Moore says, in between the two is the kind of church that is going to be able to speak and minister effectively into this new situation that we find ourselves in the United States. And so that's the purpose of this sermon. I'm going to seek to strike that balance as we consider how should we, as Christians, respond to the ruling of the Supreme Court on June 26th. I'm not going to take time in this message to define traditional marriage or to explain it to you or to unpack the text that I just read. Um, maybe that's a sermon series for a later time. Uh, nor am I going to spend time showing you scriptures that teach that homosexual activity is a sin. I actually did that a few weeks ago on May 24th. Uh, when I preached on the passage Romans 1, 26 and 27, that is available at our website. So if you didn't hear that, you can go there and hear the case that was made there. Um, th that's not the purpose of this sermon. I I'm going to assume that you understand that I am coming from uh, a perspective that upholds the traditional, what I would say, better qualified, the biblical view of marriage. Uh, nor is this going to be an exegetical sermon. Typically, I take just one passage and we unpack the one passage. But we're going to go all over the place here. So there's going to be a lot of scripture to consider um, this morning. <clears throat> and um, so I encourage you to take notes so that you can review these things. And I want you to know that everything that I'm going to say this morning is, to the best of my ability, rooted in the teaching of God's word. So there are five categories that we're going to look at. I'm departing from our typical three-point sermon and going to a five-point sermon. And we're going to look at five areas in which we as God's people need to seek to strike a balance, a balanced biblical response to uh, the ruling of the Supreme Court. So we're going to look at um, how we should respond emotionally, how we should respond verbally, how we should respond culturally how we should respond spiritually, and how we should respond theologically. All right, five things. So let's just get into this. First, emotionally. <clears throat> how, as believers, should we respond to this emotionally? Okay, so for each one of these categories, I'm going to have a counterbalancing two points, two subpoints. So to begin with, as believers in Christ, we should be grieved at what the Supreme Court did on Friday, June 26th. We should be weeping over this. There are some that have a somewhat apathetic response, even in the church. There are some who say, well, it's a secular government. We don't live in a Christian nation. Why would we expect any different? And there is a point to be made there. That's true. But nonetheless, here's what the psalmist says. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The psalmist is affected emotionally in a deeply profound way 
about the immorality that he sees around him. Do you remember when Paul went into Athens in Acts chapter 17? Athens was no Christian nation either. But when Paul saw the idols that were erected throughout the city, it says he was deeply distressed about that. He didn't say, well, it's a secular environment here. I wouldn't expect them to be any different. He was bothered by it, and Christians should be too. Of course, there are a number of different kinds of sins that are legal. This is an argument that sometimes people will make. Adultery is not illegal, so now same-sex marriage is not illegal. So what's the difference? Why are you so, so bothered by this? Well, well, here's the difference. What's happening in our nation and what the Supreme Court has done is not just simply normalized same-sex marriage. It's not just simply celebrating same-sex marriage. It has institutionalized what the Bible calls an abomination. In our country, we have institutionalized, celebrated, and lifted up before the entire world what the Bible would call wickedness. That is not an occasion for celebration. That is not the occasion for joyful hugs. That is the occasion for weeping. And that's what the psalmist says here in Psalm 119, 136. So we should be grieved. <clears throat> And at the same time, we should be confident. There's a balance here. We should not, as God's people, be overcome by fear. We should not be overcome by panic. Why? Because Jesus Christ is still alive, friends. He is still reigning from the throne room of heaven. Your names are still written in heaven. You are still justified before God's law. There is no one who can take that from you. The promise still stands that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The Supreme Court can't take that away from us. We have every reason to continue to be confident. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 56. In the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can the Supreme Court do to me, we might say? What can man do to me? The psalmist does not live in fear or panic. There's a certain confidence there. Now, I think the psalmist does experience fear, and I think that's why he's saying this. I think he's preaching to himself. He's saying, I don't have to be afraid. And maybe some of us here today are afraid for the future. Well, we should take these words into our mouths and say, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? You know, the Supreme Court is not the supreme arbiter of truth. The Supreme Court doesn't choose what is real and what is not. You might remember from your history classes in 1857, the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision voted by a vote of seven to two that African Americans should not be citizens in the United States of America. That was a Supreme Court ruling 150 years ago. And we look back now and we see how dreadfully wrong that was. And we can look at the decision of the court last Friday and acknowledge how dreadfully wrong they were there too. But nonetheless, we shall not be afraid. What can man do to us? So there's a balanced emotional response for you to consider based on the scripture. Second thing, <clears throat> how do we respond verbally? 
How should we respond in terms of how we talk about this at home, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces? The first thing I suggest is that we need to be prepared as Christians to defend biblical marriage. And the scriptures command us to do this. I'm not sure why the formatting is messed up there. I'm sorry, but 1 Peter 3 says this. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's something very unique about the age in which we live. Maybe unlike any time in American history, we have people asking us about what we believe on this subject. That there are unusually broad open opportunities for us to speak in to this issue. And we can no longer assume as Christians that people even understand what marriage is about, what it was intended for, why a marriage between a man and a woman is actually important. A lot of people don't even know that that's what the Bible teaches. Don't assume that the people that you work with and live with and play with understand the very basic elements of biblical Christianity and biblical marriage because many of them don't. And that's an opportunity. But you gotta be willing to speak up. You gotta be willing to talk about it. I know some of you are shy and introverted and it's hard for you to speak up. I understand that. I'm not saying you gotta be able to answer every single question. But <clears throat> remember what Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. To say nothing. To just say, well, you know, this court has decided there's nothing we can do about it. I don't want to offend anybody. I, I want to maintain my relationship with these people. And I think if I talk about this, I'll alienate them and they won't listen to me anymore. So I'm just not going to talk about it. It just seems like many in the church today are very reticent on this issue for various fears. But the Bible tells us, be ready. Be ready to talk about it. Look for those opportunities. Be ready to explain why is marriage a good thing. Be willing to talk about the fact that marriage is the best environment in which children can thrive. Marriage is, throughout all of human civilization, one of the basic building blocks of a healthy society and culture. But most importantly, be prepared. And here's the great opportunity we have. You can talk about what is most fundamental about biblical marriage, and that is that marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's like God is throwing us a softball here. You can get right to the gospel, and you can say, here's why God established marriage. Because marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. A husband and a wife are different genders. Christ and the church are different entities as well. But the way a husband loves his wife is supposed to reflect the sacrificial love that Jesus showed in giving up his life for the church. That's what marriage is about. And that's why same-sex marriage is so aberrant. It, it distorts the image that God has designed marriage to reflect. Be ready to talk. And if you don't know where to begin, there is so much good material. I gave you some reading recommendations um, on the Romans 1 sermon. I'm going to give you some more. 
<clears throat> Here's a book by Robert Riley. It's called Making Gay Okay, How Rationalizing Homosexuality is Changing Everything. Very good book. Book by Robert George. Actually, he's the editor. What is Marriage, Man and Woman, a Defense? And one I've recommended to you before by Kevin DeYoung, Answering Questions about homosexuality. I'm sorry we don't have these books available on our book table now, but you know that they're very easy to get. Each of these books is about $10. Go to Amazon, order them, read them, take notes on them, digest the material, and be prepared to defend biblical marriage. But the balance to that, friends, is this. Be prepared to speak with grace. Here's what Colossians says. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. I think this applies in pretty much all issues, but maybe more so on this issue, that how you say it is at least, if not more important, than what you say. You have to speak with grace and patience and great care about this situation. That means, friends, when you talk, whether it's on Facebook or email or face-to-face, -face, no mocking, no sarcasm, no raised voices, no name-calling, no crudeness, no interrupting, no flimsy straw man arguments, no equivocating, no talking before you know what you're talking about, no threats. Speak with grace. Christians have been notoriously guilty of alienating audiences, not so much because of what they're saying sometimes, but because of how they say it. Look for opportunities to affirm the person that you're talking to. Look for what he or she says is right and say it. If you're wrong, acknowledge it. Admit it. Be humble about it. If you're writing a note on Facebook and you're all charged up and you just feel that anger in your heart, I think it was a Thomas Jefferson said, if you're angry, count to 10 before you say anything. If you're really angry, count to 100. And I would suggest that if you're writing a message and you just feel that anger coming through, that you ought to just put it away. Go away for an hour. It can wait an hour. And do something else and get your mind off of it and come back and look at it again and see how it appears to you. And if it sounds like it's maybe a little more stinging than it should be, then you can revise it. Sleep on it is another good thing if you can afford to do that. Speak with grace. Speak about it speak with grace. Culturally, <clears throat> how should we respond culturally? First thing, resist the temptation to join the world on this issue. Resist the temptation to just kind of give up and fall in line with what we're hearing from every corner of our culture. That same-sex marriage should be celebrated and accepted. Here's what Romans 12 says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are going to be tempted 
Because you're going to hear these kinds of arguments from all sides. You're going to hear people say that it's only fair that two people who love each other, no matter what their genders, should be married. And after all, who am I to judge? How can I make a moral judgment on what other people are doing? You're going to hear that, and it's just going to kind of push you a little bit in that direction of just kind of saying, yeah, you know, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. I mean, all my favorite musicians are for it. All my favorite athletes are for it. All the companies that I give money to are for it. Seems like almost every politician is for it. Who am I to say that this is wrong when the whole world seems to be going in the opposite direction? But what Paul is saying here is be careful. Don't be conformed to the world because that's what the world wants. The world wants to conform you. The world wants to get you to fall in line. And friends, the world is being deceived right now. Our nation and the whole world is being deceived. And our nation is an, is an exporter of this particular brand of wickedness throughout the world. And people are falling for it. Uh, I just want to let you know, maybe you, you, you do know, I, I've been writing a blog seeking to answer questions, commonly asked questions about homosexuality. The first installment um, was posted on Friday. The question was, how can we really know what the Bible says about homosexuality when there's so many different interpretations of the Bible? So that, that's a, a way that people also kind of, kind of avoid the question. How can we really know what the Bible says? Well, I sought to answer that, and you can read it on our website. And <clears throat> what I'm seeking to do is uh, answer a different question every week. So next Friday, we'll have a different question. That question will be, are homosexuals welcome in our church? So I'm going to answer that next week. And then every week, just as long as questions keep coming to mind, I'm just going to keep trying to answer them. If you have questions, send them my way, and uh, I'll seek to answer that. Um, but all of this is in attempt to help you not be conformed to the world. Friends, this is just absolutely critical for us as Christians it's always good to do these things, but maybe never more so than now for you to be serious about reading your Bible and understanding what the Bible says about these things. It is absolutely essential for you to be here on Sunday mornings. You need to be here six days out of the week. You are receiving constant input from the world on one morning you come, and you worship with God's people and hear God's word preached. You need that so badly, or you are going to be conformed to the world. It's almost inevitable that it's going to happen. And when you think of your children, do you know how vulnerable your children are to the efforts of the world to bring them along to buy into this mass deception? I have a good friend from <clears throat> Indianapolis, Faithful Christian, goes to College Park Church, loves the word, committed believer, and his daughter, a 10-year-old girl, came to him a little while ago and said, Daddy, why are you such a hater? Because in school, she'd been taught that those who uphold traditional marriage are haters. And that's what your children are getting. That's the message that they're going to be receiving Sunday school is absolutely critical, parents, for your children to take part in. 
This is where they're going to learn how not to be conformed to the world. This is where they're going to learn the biblical foundation for not just marriage, but all aspects of how we live as Christians. Jennifer Marshall from uh, the uh, Heritage Foundation says this, Children today will be surrounded by a much different plausibility structure than their parents when it comes to issues about sexual identity and behavior. It will take intentional worldview formation. You know, that's, that's what a church is about. I mean, I'm, I think my, maybe primarily that's what we're doing here. We're engaging in intentional worldview formation for you as adults and for your children. Uh, and, witness, and witnessing it in practice among not just parents but a community of believers to help the next generation navigate the brave new world. We need to be intentional about avoiding what the world is seeking to do. And then the balance to that is this. <clears throat> Resist the temptation to retreat from the world. I mean, having just said everything that I just said, the temptation might be, well, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go get a cabin up in the mountains and just live up there. And it has been suggested since last Friday that Christians should maybe consider um, going back to the monastery system and just living together in a monastery and retreating from the world. But that's not an option. I don't believe that's an option. It's not to say there's never a time to go to a monastery, but here's what Jesus says in John 17. This is the high priestly prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I do not ask that you take them, that is, his disciples, that's you and me. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. You know, one way to get away from the evil one is to try to get out of the world. Jesus says, no, keep them in the world, but Father, protect them. Because as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That's what the gospel is all about. The Father sending his Son into the world to live among us and to die on a cross and to be resurrected from the dead for salvation. And in that same model, we are also called into the world. And I would suggest this, friends. If you have homosexual friends, you have um, gay people in your neighborhood, in your family that, that you're acquainted with for some reason, you need to reach out to them. Have them over to your house. Have them over for dinner. And don't do it to get into a big argument about same-sex marriage. Don't do it to shame them and to change and Do it to love them and to befriend them and to hang out with them and to get to know them. That's what it is to be in the world. It's not to flee and run away from opportunities, nor is it to flee and run away from opportunities to serve those with whom we might disagree. Jesus had some pretty profound disagreements with the world, didn't he? And yet he came into the world anyway and befriended us in the most profound way by turning former enemies into his friends through the cross. So resist the temptation to retreat from the world. Spiritually, how should we respond spiritually? Commit to prayer. Commit yourself to praying, not just for your own spiritual growth, but for some of the things that you heard Jonathan pray for just a moment ago, that our freedoms will be preserved here in this nation to be able to worship and to proclaim the truth without fear of reprisal. 
This is our primary weapon in fighting this battle, if you want to call it that. It's not really primarily a political battle. That's not really it. It's not really a culture war. I mean, that's the word that's often been used to describe this. Maybe that's part of it. But as Christians, we know what's really going on here is a spiritual battle. And here's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, not just mere men and women. That's not our enemy here. It's against the rulers. It's against the authorities. It's against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What Paul's talking about is a very real spiritual world in which evil forces are at work. So in one sense, it shouldn't surprise us so much about what our court has ruled. Sometimes we get to looking for What's Satan doing? And I I tell you what Satan does is he deceives people into believing lies. That's what he does. It's one of his primary activities. And he likes to cast doubt in people's minds about what the Bible says. It was the very first thing he did in Genesis 3. Did God really say? That's what he said to Eve. You sure God said that? Is that not what we're hearing all the time? About this issue, are you sure God, are you sure the Bible says homosexual activity is a sin? Are you sure about that? Isn't there another way to look at it? Did God really say that? I have no problem saying that the, these changes that have been taking place on this issue with regard to same-sex marriage is evidence of the activity of the devil himself. This is satanic activity going on in our nation and in our world. And that's what Paul is saying here. But he goes on, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. Prayer. Maybe, maybe as these events have taken place in our nation and as changes continue to take place in our future, maybe the people of God will start getting really passionate about prayer. Wouldn't that be great? At our prayer meeting last Sunday night, we had 14 people at the prayer meeting. That's great. <laughs> that's, that's much more than we've had in, in a long time. And we do meet. We encourage prayer in life groups primarily, but on the last Sunday of the month, we meet for prayer at 6 o'clock. And you're all invited to come to those meetings. And I think we need to be taking those seriously as we pray. But the balance to this, commit to prayer, I'm not saying that we just kind of go behind our doors and pray privately. We also need to commit ourselves to holiness, to holy living before the world. You know, one of the best ways to make a case for traditional marriage is to work on your own marriage. One of the best ways to fight for traditional marriage is to do everything you can to hold your marriage together. Because quite frankly, when people see Christians yelling and screaming about the immorality of homosexuality and then they see the divorce rate among us, you can hardly blame them for saying, you know what, I'm not sure you have a whole lot of credibility to speak into this issue. Your marriage is a wreck. And you think that I should try to model what you're doing? Why not try something different? I mean, I can hear that rationalization going on. It's not to say this is easy. It's not to say there aren't certain exceptions. 
But friends, we have to be intentional about creating a countercultural to the way the world is going, where the way we practice sexuality and marriage is refreshingly different than what the world sees and lives under and practices. And that includes those of you who are single also. You, you need to do what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Then each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. You are not to have sex before you're married. Singles, the Bible is very clear about that. And one of the best ways that we can adorn the message that we're teaching and preaching as Christians is to live lives that match up with what we're saying. Homosexuality, same-sex marriage is not the only threat to traditional marriage. That's, that's the point. Spiritually speaking, commit to prayer and commit to holiness. And then the last thing, <clears throat> theologically, two things here. Remember the call to suffer for Christ. Remember that there is a call upon our lives as followers of Jesus that, that we are to prepare, we are to be prepared to suffer. Here's what Philippians 1 says. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, that's a wonderful gift, isn't it? To believe in Jesus for salvation. Grace alone, even the belief is a gift. But in addition to that, there is also the gift of suffering for his sake. You know, I don't know what's in our future. I don't know what kind of suffering might be before us. I'm not necessarily predicting what's going to happen. I, I don't think that would be wise. But, you know, I look in the news and I see these kinds of things like um, last year the city of Houston requested the sermons of five pastors in the city so that the city could look at it to see what they were saying about same-sex marriage. Uh, there was a Pennsylvania newspaper just last week that said, we will not accept any op-ed pieces that challenge same-sex marriage. We won't print them. And I think they've reversed course on that <clears throat> after uh, an uh, outcry against that. There was an editorial in the New York Times um, recently calling for church leaders to take homosexuality off the sin list. Our own president in his speech after the Supreme Court decision said that it's now the job of those who have embraced marriage quality to reach back and help us who don't believe that to come along to their way of looking at things. He wants to help us. He wants to help us change our views. That's the way I'm reading that. Maybe I'm misunderstanding him. You read that and tell me if I've got that wrong. But that's, that's what he seems to be saying. You know, I, I don't know what all that stuff means, but it seems to be heading in a direction that's not going to be good for those of us who hold to biblical marriage. Now, let me be clear. I mean, these are pretty minor sufferings compared to the sufferings that are going on among our brothers and sisters throughout the world. That is absolutely true. I mean, we still have it really good here. I mean, we're not getting our heads chopped off for believing in Jesus. There's a lot to be thankful for. We, we do still have a lot of freedom, but there are developments that seem to be signifying a change. And this new era in which we live as Christians, I think at the very least, 
is putting us in a position where if you support biblical marriage and if you are going to say that homosexual activity is a sin, you're going to be looked at as out of step. You're probably going to be branded as hateful. You'll probably be called a bigot. And if you're one who just really longs for the approval of the world, it's going to be really hard for you to maintain a strong stand on traditional marriage. I think that's a good question that we need to all ask. How much does the approval of the world really mean to us? And I see people in the church, it seems like they're doing everything they can to try to make sure that we're not saying anything that might offend or that might be misunderstood or that might get someone to call us a bigot. Or to, It's like we're just scared to death that someone is not going to like us. Well, friends, if you're going to stand for biblical truth, people are not going to like you. There's no way around it. I mean, you can do the best you can. Hear this in context. Remember what I said, speak with grace. That's still true. I'm not saying that you get into arguments for the sake of arguments. I'm not talking about alienating people willfully and being rude and mean and insensitive. I'm just saying no matter how hard you try, no matter how carefully you package this thing, it's not going to be received by the world. And here's how Denny Burke says it. No amount of niceness, of social justice advocating, or of human trafficking opposition, or of listening to the right bands, or of wearing the right clothes, or of poverty relief is going to remove the reproach of Christ from you if you choose to follow his teaching on sexuality. We're called to suffer for Christ. And so we shouldn't be surprised if the world doesn't like what we believe. And then at the same time, the balance to that is, is simply this. Remember, friends, that God is sovereign. God is in charge. This is no surprise in God's mind, in God's plan. This isn't taking him off guard. Do you know that before the foundation of the world, when God was writing out history, he wrote into his story the Supreme Court ruling on June 26th. He, he said, this is, this is what's going to happen. And he planned it that way. And if you doubt that, look at Acts chapter 4. Here's the disciples. This is um, right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're beginning to feel the pressure of being followers of Christ. And so they lift up their voices together to God in prayer. And they say, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. For truly, in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They were gathered against Jesus. You know what they did? They hung him on a cross. They killed him. They executed him. But in doing that, they did whatever your hand, God, and your plan had predestined to take place. And as... Bad as we might look at the Supreme Court ruling on June 26, the crucifixion of the Son of God was a whole lot worse, and yet it was part of God's eternal and sovereign plan. The good news, friends, is that even though that was God's plan to put Jesus on the cross, we know what God did with that. He resurrected Jesus from the grave. He brought him up out of that tomb. He overcame the powers of darkness, the powers of evil, the powers of death, the powers of Satan himself. He did everything necessary for us to be saved and justified and redeemed and to be incorporated into the family of God. That's what God brought out of the crucifixion that he planned. And I think we can wonder 
with great hopeful expectation what he might bring out of this current situation. Maybe this is the occasion for revival. Maybe the church grows like crazy because of the pressures that are placed on it right now. Things aren't necessarily going downhill. This is God's plan and he has a good reason for it. My friend Pastor Jim Sandberg over at Tabor says, you know, this decision might not be good for the United States, but it will be good for the gospel. It will be good for the glory of God. You can be assured of that. And for you, personally, you, you might be thinking, I, I just feel like I'm so out of place in this world. I think I was made for a different world, a different age. You, you think I was made, I, I should have been brought up in the 1950s. You know, you, you feel like you don't belong here. But friends, you do belong here. You belong in this age because God sovereignly puts you in this age and has raised you up for a time such as this that you might speak the truth about God's word in love and grace and gentleness and respect for the glory of God. We might be called to suffer, but God is sovereign. Bottom line is this, friends. Who defines marriage? It is not the Supreme Court. God defines marriage. Marriage is still between one man and one woman. That is the true definition of that institution. And that will never change. And who is the highest court in this land? It is not the Supreme Court, but it is the divine court. And sitting as judge is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to return one day, and he is coming back, returning for whom? His bride. So that we can gather together with him in the marriage supper of the Lamb, rejoicing with him and with God's people forever and ever. And I'm going to conclude here by reading the first verse of the hymn that we're about to sing that I think is appropriate for us to think about, something we should take to heart <clears throat> in light of the changes in our nation. Be still, my soul. Let me just read this first verse. It says this, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side. Hear patiently, excuse me, bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. That's our future. A joyful end. Let's pray together. Lord, I do pray that by your spirit you would prepare us for the days, months, and years ahead that we might be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, clinging humbly to the truth and constantly telling ourselves to be still our souls because God reigns and his glory will fill the sea and all the earth, and we long for that to happen, and pray for you, Jesus, to come quickly. In your name we pray, amen.